Okay, thank you everybody for joining us today. I'm Michelle Morris from Consolidated Planning Group. Um, I'm going to go over the, the rules of the road today, and then I'll introduce our speakers. I want to say thank you to Ryan uh, for hosting us and having us today and sharing uh, sharing us with the parents. Um, hopefully, they everyone will find this uh, webinar to be very helpful. Uh, we've got Allison Packard with us today. She will be speaking. So um, this we're in webinar mode, which means that we cannot hear you or see you. Everybody's muted and your uh, video cameras are turned off. So please, if you have any questions or comments, put them in the chat box. I will be keeping an eye on that and letting Allison know when we have questions and, and what those questions are. This webinar is being recorded and um, after we're finished with the webinar, we will email you a link to the recording and the slides and any handouts that Allison might have uh, for you if she has anything that she wants to send out with the recording. Um, so Consolidated Planning Group, a tiny bit about us before we get started and I'll put our contact info in the chat box as well. But we are a an independent holistic financial planning firm located in the Houston area. We serve all of Texas and several other states, of course, uh, throughout the United States. Um, we focus mainly on families who have special needs loved ones. And the reason for that is because the owner of our company, who is also an Allison, uh, she has four kids and two of them have, have special needs. So that's why she took our company in the direction of serving and educating and advocating for families who have loved ones with special needs. Um, you can reach us by phone at 281-690-1177 or you can email it, email us, contact at cpgcares.net. Also, if you're listening in on our podcast, which we've just started uh, doing, I think we've got about 20, 25 episodes now on our podcast. Um, if you would like the slides emailed to you, you can also email us. Again, that address is contact at cpgcares.net. Okay, so next slide is some of the things that we do at Consolidated Planning Group. Uh, we have families who come to us looking for protection plans for their families, lifetime care plans. We help a lot with transition planning, um, ABLE accounts, and like I said, advocacy and educational um, webinars for families who, who have questions. Uh, so without further ado, I would rather turn it over to Allison Packard and let her talk to you. Like I said, and I'm, I'll put this in the chat box again, you will receive a recording of this webinar and you will receive the slides later today in your email. And please, if you have any questions or comments, put them in the chat box. All right, go ahead, Allison. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. Um, I'm an attorney here in the San Antonio area. And I think a lot of people on the call today are from my home school district, the Northeast Independent School District. And it's I appreciate the opportunity to speak with everyone and welcome everyone from other areas of the state. 
And so um, my my practice really uh, revolves around special needs planning. You know, our firm at the Packard Law Firm, we do injury work, a lot of social security, disability applications and appeals. Um, I personally handle appeals that are related to special needs trucks and those kinds of things with the Social Security Administration. Um, and I also do guardianships and alternatives and general estate planning and probate work. So my real passion for this, also similar to Allison Staubert, is um, I have a daughter with special needs as well. And I think that's how we learn the most is by being parents dealing with these issues. So it is personal for me, and I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, okay, we're going to talk about guardianships. So when we have kids who are reaching the age of adulthood, then it's time to make some decisions and really understand that there's going to be a transition that takes place. Um, when our children reach the age of 18, our authority as parents changes. You know, we no longer have the legal right to be making medical decisions, signing all the documents for school, choosing where our children live. You know, legally speaking, those powers cease. Now, practically speaking, a lot of times, I can still be very involved in medical decisions and schools I've worked with have been very good to work with me. Um, but legally speaking, after age 18, you don't have authority to you know, say, this is how it's gonna be. So you've gotta figure out what is the plan for my child? Uh, one thing you could do is just say, let my child represent himself or herself. So this is a picture of my daughter, Angela. You know, I can just say, you know what? I'm not gonna do anything. Angela, go make all your decisions. Uh, sign your documents, handle everything yourself. And for most of us, that's a really scary thought and probably not the best option for people on this call at least. So another option would be to have a guardian appointed who would have the legal authority to make those decisions. Now a guardianship we're gonna see is pretty, um, pretty intense uh, court involved fiduciary obligation. And so for some people, it's too extreme. When someone's under a guardianship, then they will lose rights to make a lot of their own decisions and, and uh, you know, be able to just exercise some basic civil rights. And so it's not the right alternative for many people. For some people, something less restrictive is more, uh, more um, appropriate. So let's talk about what a guardianship is. Guardianship is a court determination of incapacity and the need for appointment of a guardian. So when we go to a court hearing for a guardianship, the judge is going to deem this person as an incapacitated adult. An incapacitated person is someone who, because of their physical or mental condition, is substantially unable to provide for food, clothing, or shelter for himself or herself, or care for their own physical health. Okay, so that's the first part of a guardianship hearing, is making that determination of incapacity. If we're trying to determine someone to be an incapacitated adult, then we can't have that court hearing until the person is 18, because they need to be of that age. The other part of the court hearing is figuring out who the right guardian is and qualifying somebody in particular to serve as a guardian. Let's go back to the incapacity. How do we determine that someone is medically incapacitated the real key for guardianship hearings is a specific form in Texas called a physician certificate of medical examination. So this is a form that the doctor completes. It needs to be a doctor licensed in Texas 
In my area of Texas, we have lots of military families um, and they use great military doctors, but the doctor has to have a Texas license. The doctor fills out this form and it, it's kind of small on your screen, but if you can see, there is one section where the doctor is gonna indicate what the proposed ward, that's the name that we give to the person who's going to be under the guardianship. It's, it's a term, I, it's not very flattering, I don't love it, but that's what the courts use. So the, the doctor will say, if the proposed ward can make decisions about, and there's a whole list of things, can this person make decisions about voting, where to live, marriage, could they drive, could they consent to their own uh, psychological treatment, medical treatment, and so the doctor goes through and says, yes, no, yes, no. And if the doctor puts a lot of no's all the way down, then we're probably looking at a total guardianship. It is possible to have a partial or limited authority guardianship in Texas. And that would be a situation where the doctor might indicate that um, perhaps the, the proposed ward wants to keep his or her right to vote. And the, the parents and everyone feels that that's appropriate. So we do that a lot. We have limited guardianships. Now, if you want your child to keep her right to get married and her right to choose where she lives and her right to vote, and you've got all these things you want your child to keep rights to do, the court is naturally going to ask, well, does she really need a guardianship? If she can keep all of those rights, then why are we doing a guardianship? So it's not like you get to just pick and choose. You've got to have medical evidence to say that the person under a guardianship is able to do these things. If it turns out that your child, I'm just going to assume I'm talking mostly to parents here, your child is not able to do those things on the list, it's going to be a full guardianship. And when the guardianship is um, finished and, and the judge appoints you as a guardian, your child will no longer have the right to vote, drive, marry, make medical decisions, choose their own residence, own or operate a firearm. And so it is something pretty serious. In Texas, we have guardianship of the person and guardianship of the estate. Other states a lot of times refer to guardianship of the estate as a conservatorship. Um, this is just the terms that we use here in Texas. Guardian of the person is someone who is, has the authority to make medical decisions, uh, make educational decisions, choose where the, per, where the ward lives. Um, guardianship of the estate, that's managing money. So they're separated in Texas. We had a lot of very intense guardianship reform in the past few years. And one of the key pieces of reform is that in Texas, we're very serious about not taking away someone's rights until we've considered alternatives. In other words, we're not just going to go to court and say, my child no longer has the right to do this, 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 and this, unless there is a real reason for it. Was there an alternative? Is there some way we could help this person without removing their rights. So we have to always consider alternatives and supports and services before the court will appoint a guardian. And that, by the way, is part of the guardianship hearing. When I go to the hearing, I have to ask um, the proposed guardian, you know, did you consider alternatives to this guardianship? And we talk about it with the judge and make sure that it's clear that we thought about those alternatives, but there wasn't an alternative to avoid the guardianship. So Allison, if, uh, for example, we have someone who is a young adult who can, you know, mentally make the decisions, but physically is quadriplegic, can't sign for themselves, things like that, that would be maybe a partial guardianship or just power of attorney or something like that, right? 
Right. There may not be a guardianship needed at all in that situation because there are ways that that individual could sign a power of attorney with assistance through the notary. You know, as long as they are mentally um, bright enough to understand what they're signing and they can communicate their wishes in some way, which there's many ways we can do that, then sometimes a power of attorney will be sufficient. So, yeah, great question. Let, let me kind of talk you through some of the less restrictive alternatives. And Brandon, Michelle, feel free to interrupt me if you, if, if you have some questions or if I need to clarify something. So less restrictive alternatives for guardianship of the person. What we usually look at are powers of attorney. You know, I already mentioned that we could have a guardianship with limited authority. authority. That's uh, not necessarily an alternative to the guardianship, but it lessens the severity of the guardianship. But powers of attorney are really the key alternatives. So we look at uh, whether or not the person that we're considering placing under guardianship, whether or not that person has the understanding, the intellectual capacity to sign a power of attorney. If they can, they could, you know, if they have that ability, that intellectual capacity, then they could sign a medical power of attorney and just appoint someone to make decisions for them if they're no longer able to do it. They could also sign a durable power of attorney. That would mean somebody to be able to manage their finances, uh, represent them in school meetings, you know, those kinds of things. There's also supported decision-making agreements, and that is a fairly new alternative in recent years. Texas was actually the first state to come up with supported decision-making agreements. And so we're seeing this spread across the country. This is where you are asking someone to be your supporter. You're not giving that person authority to make decisions for you, but you're asking them to help you communicate, help you understand, and support you in making the decision. And then a declaration of mental health treatment. Let me get into a little more detail on these alternatives, okay? Medical power of attorney, again, this is where we're asking an agent to make medical decisions for us. And by the way, all of us should have these powers of attorney. We don't need to have disabilities to for us to need to go get these documents. It's a good idea for all of us because at some point, any of us can become incapacitated. And in Texas, the doctor makes the decision as to when this medical power of attorney kicks in. When is this person deemed to not have the ability to make their own medical decisions? That's when the agent will take over and make decisions for the person who's, in, who's incapacitated. Remember that you have to understand what you're signing to sign a power of attorney. So a lot of times I, I've seen parents with kids with, who have very significant disabilities just put a paper in front of their adult child and tell the child to sign it. You know, that legally speaking is not valid. You've got to understand what you're signing to have a medical power of attorney be an option for you. It's also important to remember that medical powers of attorney are revocable. So if your child appoints you as the agent to make medical decisions for him or her, and they have capacity to do that, they can also change their mind and say, nope, it's not mom anymore. Now it's my girlfriend or my boyfriend or, you know, whoever they want to choose. So it's not something they can't change their mind on, but they've got to have capacity in the first place. Durable power of attorney, um, similar to medical power of attorney, only now it's not medical decisions. Now it's you know, the, the money in the bank, creating a bank account, it is going to a uh, ARD meeting and signing IEPs. It is, you know, anything that's not really related to medical decisions would fall under this, you know, maybe a job contract, a contract for where you're gonna live. 
these kinds of powers of attorney, they can be effective immediately when you sign it. And remember, that's different from the medical power of attorney where the doctor has to say it's time for this to kick in. Um, for durable power of attorneys, you have an option. You could say, I want this to be effective right now, today, now that I'm signing it, or I only want it to be effective if a doctor says I'm incapacitated, similar to the medical power of attorney. So you have a choice on this one. We have in Texas statutory durable powers of attorney, which are set forms that we use. They can be altered a little bit, but there's a, a basic outline of what the power of attorney should look at, look like, I should say. And that makes them more acceptable at banks. So, you know, they're used to seeing what the form is. It doesn't take as much, um, doesn't take as long to get them approved by a legal department or something like that. For someone who has kind of borderline capacity, we might do a simplified durable power of attorney so that it's not as complicated as the statutory form. Again, the person signing the power of attorney has to understand the legal document they're signing. And I've mentioned this already, all of us should have powers of attorney, especially our parents who are aging. We want to make sure those are in place because they could lose their capacity due to, you know, the ages that hit people in their later years, Alzheimer's, dementia, uh, cancers, things that happen. So, you know, you want to make sure elderly people have these in place. College kids, you know, I make sure all my college kids have powers of attorney in place because if something happens, I want to be able to talk to the doctor and, and make medical decisions and we should have our own in place. Now, Allison, if you have guardianship, do you, need, I mean, that already gives you power of attorney, right? Or do you need both? Good question. No, you don't need both. If you have guardianship, you, a power of attorney, isn't needed. And in fact, if you've ever signed a power of attorney and then you're placed under a guardianship, the power of attorney is revoked. So the guardian has all the powers and many, many more uh, than what the agent would have under a power of attorney. So there'd be no reason for both. Okay, thank you. Let me just touch on supported decision-making agreements. This was part of the big 2015 guardianship reform here in Texas. And the theory behind supported decision-making agreements was that, you know, Decision making is a learned skill. We need practice to get good at it. Um, those of us who've had kids, you know, without disabilities at the age of 18, 19, we know that they need some practice. We all needed practice. And so the philosophy is let's let people with disabilities have practice, but they need support. And so a supported decision making agreement is where the disabled individual we call principal selects a supporter. You don't need to go to court to sign to have this in place. You don't even need an attorney. There are lots of samples of supported decision-making agreements on Disability Rights Texas website, the Arc of Texas website. I can send you one. Uh, Ryan may have one. So there's there's lots of samples out there. But if you you know you can do it in an attorney's office, but I'm just saying it's not always necessary. But again, the key thing to remember about these SDMAs, we call them is that the supporter cannot make decisions for the principal, only assist in the decision-making agreement. And so I don't recommend relying only on a supported decision-making agreement. I think it's too risky because if all you had was a supported decision-making in place and your child lost capacity and a decision needed to be made, if you didn't have a power of attorney with that SDMA to back it up, uh, you know, you're going to end up with a guardianship. So they're, they're great tool, but not, in my opinion, you shouldn't use them alone. 
this is just kind of an example to show you very easy to understand these SDMAs, very, very simple name address who you're who you're asking to be the supporter what are you asking them to do okay all right guardianship of the estate so those were alternatives we just discussed for guardianship of the person now let's think about alternatives for guardianship of the estate and usually for most parents with developmentally disabled children who are now reaching the age where they they need a guardian usually we can find an alternative to guardianship of the estate um, some of the alternatives include the supported decision-making agreements, again, allowing your supporter to help you with, you know, bank accounts and managing money. Also, the durable power of attorney, we already touched on that. Um, this would, I think I mentioned before that it, you can manage finances with the power of attorney. Of course, that financial aspect of it makes it an alternative to guardianship of the estate. For most of us who have kids with disabilities, you know, their only income may be just SSI or SSDI. The Social Security Administration has a system in place where we can be appointed as representative payees of our children. And it's kind of like a guardian for Social Security funds. So it's only one parent that can serve as a rep pay, representative payee or a sibling or whoever the right person is. But that person has authority to speak to the Social Security Administration and manage the, the funds. And that is a great alternative to a guardianship of the estate if that's the only income we're talking about. The other really important alternative to the guardianship of the estate is a trust. Um, if, you know, if I leave a bunch of money to my daughter when my husband and I die, then someone's got to manage that money for her. To avoid needing a guardian of the estate to manage the money for her, I can leave it to a special needs trust, and then she has a trustee in place that can manage her money. Um, I'm skipping down here. A trustee is, is somebody who holds title to the property, but it's for the benefit of somebody else. So if I have a special needs trust for my daughter, you know, maybe her brother is her trustee, and uh, he's not a guardian. He can't make medical decisions for her. He can't choose where she lives, but that can avoid the guardianship of the estate by letting him manage the money that I left to that trust. And and I, for a lot of people on this call, we are the at least for the NEISD group. There's going to be another presentation coming up next week, getting into a lot of details about special needs trusts and able accounts and those types of things. Um, going back to this slide, I went over it very quickly. To be a representative payee, you just work directly with the Social Security Administration. You don't need an attorney. Um, and it's interesting to know Social Security, they don't want your power of attorney. I mean, they'll be interested if you're a guardian, they'll need that paperwork, but they don't care about power of attorney. You work with them with their particular system. And it's easy to do. You know, if your child is, is being eligible for SSI or SSDI, they will typically talk to you about whether or not your child is able to manage money and they will know that a representative payee needs to be appointed. Allison, do you uh, have time to take some questions or do you have sure. a, a break coming up or? Yeah, let me just let me just quickly, I said we were gonna talk about special needs trust later. Let me just go to this slide and, we'll, and I'll take some questions. Um, I'm not gonna have time to really get into it, but it is important to understand that a special needs trust is different from just a regular trust Special needs trusts are only for beneficiaries who are disabled. The control is very restricted. There's specific language that needs to be in a special needs trust about supplementing and not supplanting government benefits. And if you use this kind of trust as an alternative to the guardianship, it is it will it will allow 
the the beneficiary of the trust to be eligible for all kinds of needs-based government benefits to receive SSI and Medicaid very limited on income and assets and the money in the trust or the property held in trust the real estate whatever it is won't count as an asset so there's so much to say on this I know that consolidated planning group has lots of videos on this topic and if you have questions you can reach out to me so I just at least wanted to give a super quick overview on these trusts. There's different kinds of special needs trusts, first party and third party. Again, it's a lot of information to cover, but you should just know there's different kinds. One has the Medicaid payback on it, which means when the beneficiary dies, Medicaid gets reimbursed. The other type of trust does not have that. And so, you know, we have to look at the appropriate kind of trust. All right, give me your questions before we go on to the next part. Okay, perfect. So uh, the first one, someone's asking, how can I adopt my 18-year-old who I have guardianship over? Would, th would they need that? So possibly. So what a guardianship does is give you the right, if it's a guardianship of the person, to make the medical decisions, to choose where this person's going to live, if it's a guardianship of the estate, to manage money. But sometimes adoption is still not a bad idea if you want that uh, the ward, we would say, I, I don't like these terms, but the person under the guardianship, if you want them to be able to be eligible for government benefits under your work record, and you want to be treated as a parent, um, there are lots of benefits that can flow to a disabled individual uh, who is an adult child. And a lot of that is pretty, you know, valuable benefits, I'm kind of rambling here. So for example, when I draw my social security retirement, I get my full amount. And because my daughter was found to be disabled before the age of 22, and she's not married, and she's been continuously disabled since age 22, I get my full retirement, but she gets 50% of what I take. And then when her dad retires, since he's got a higher work record, she'll switch to his work record. When we die, she will get 75% of our benefits because she is considered our adult child who's a dependent on us. And so sometimes adoption is still a good idea to open doors to those kinds of benefits, but other times the guardianship gives you all the power you need to make the decisions that are necessary. Fantastic, thank you. Um, does the person requesting guardianship require a social security number? Is citizenship or a resident status a factor here? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I've had that come up a few times. And we have been able to get guardianships. Now, when we apply for the guardianship, we do put the last three social security numbers. Um, I don't want to comment too much on this because I don't know for sure exactly what, you know, every how every court will handle this. But I do know it is possible to get a guardianship even if you're not a resident. Um, and so that would just be, we just look at your individual case. But I, we have done that. So I'm not giving you a real clear answer, and that might be court specific, but as far as the law goes, I, I have not found anything in the state's code that requires you to be a resident, although it will come up when we can't give a social security number. Okay, uh, so for partial guardianship, you know, is, is there a form for that? You ask for partial guardianship, or is that something like you go in and you're asking for guardianship and the judge says you only need partial um, and yeah. then, you know, how is that notated and stuff? Okay. So we're about to get into the, the process of guardianship. So 
once we get that doctor to fill out that physician's form and we see that someone is incapacitated and there's no less restrictive alternative, what we do is we draft an application. And in that application, we would ask for a guardianship with limited authority or a partial guardianship. And we would specify in our application what we're asking, uh, you know, what powers we're asking the guardian to have and what rights we're asking the proposed ward to keep. So again, if it's voting, for example, in the application, we would say it's a guardianship with the ward being able to keep his right to vote. So we specified in the application, we need medical evidence to support that. And then we talk about it again in the hearing and the order that the judge signs specifically outlines which powers the guardian has, which rights uh, the ward may keep and which rights they no longer have. If I hope that answered the question. So it's all done through the court process throughout every step. But you need that physician form to support you if you want it to go smoothly. Um, these parents would like to know, they already have full guardianship, but they were asked to provide an expense report on money that the son earns at work. And why? Why is the judge asking for that? Okay. Um, because again, a, a guardianship of the estate means you are managing money. So if you just have a guardianship of the person, you're not managing money, but perhaps the court has already found your child to be incapacitated, an incapacitated adult. And so if that child is deemed to be incapacitated, the judge is probably worried that, that, that your child does not have the ability to manage his or her own money and wants to protect that child and wants to know what's going on. Sometimes the guardianship of the estate will solve that. There are other ways that sometimes we can avoid the guardianship of the estate. If it's just a temporary or a very, you know, a part-time job, very minimal income. If you want to call me, we could kind of talk that through. But the reason the judge is probably asking for it is to make sure that, you know, the funds are being used appropriately and someone has authority to manage those funds. Let's do one more and then we'll let you, you go back to your slides and then we'll catch more of these. Okay. on our next our next break how does that sound um, so does the person providing guardianship lose their rights if the person needing guardianship goes into a state school or a state uh facility no no now let me answer that carefully um guardianship is tricky in some situations so if, if we're talking about mental health um, a guardian can take uh, a, a, a ward, person under the guardianship, you can tell I just hate term, but I have to say it. Uh, the guardian can take the ward to be evaluated by the doctor. The guardian can't force the ward to be admitted. And then once someone's admitted into that kind of institution, there are gonna be limits on the guardian's involvement, but if the person's released, the guardian's gonna be contacted. So depending on the institution, sometimes, you know, you don't you don't get as much power and control as you might want as a guardian. You know, for example, on the admission to the state to a mental health care facility, you know, you're not a doctor, even though you're a guardian, you can't say that this person must be admitted. So that it's not like you have unlimited rights to have all control over all things, but you do have a lot of rights still. And so, you know, when, when we're talking about mental health, it gets tricky. Sometimes guardianship doesn't give you all the powers that you want, and sometimes it's not as effective. Um, so that's something you could contact me offline and we could kind of talk through. It's a good question, though. Thank you, Allison. Okay. We'll get more of these questions answered. And I do want to remind everybody that 
This is being recorded and you will receive the recording and the slides later today. Okay, great. So let's talk more about the process. How long does it take? Um, it, that really depends on the county you're in. It depends on the people that need to be notified of the guardianship. I would say, generally speaking, in my part of area of Texas, we can do a guardianship in two to four months if all goes well. What slows us down is an attorney ad litem who's slow to respond, or maybe a parent in a divorce situation where there's a fight or we have a hard time finding people that need to be notified of the guardianship. Otherwise, it, it's you know a couple of months. We can do it more quickly, but that's unusual. So you should allow at least a few months. You can start the process. If you're worried about a child who's gonna turn 18 who has very significant disabilities, you could file for the guardianship up to six months before the 18th birthday. But again, we can't have the court hearing until your child is 18, okay? And you, you can start at any other time after. You don't have to have the guardianship in place at the age of 18. Many people wait, um, but if, if you have an emergency, that's where you get into a temporary guardianship. This is where we can get a guardian appointed very, very quickly. Within a couple of weeks, we can have a guardian appointed, but there has to be a true emergency. It can't be the situation where you just waited around and waited around. This is the situation where, you know, I, I did one recently for someone who was in the hospital with COVID, um, and their daughter has Down syndrome and there was not a guardian in place to make some tough decisions. So we got a temporary guardianship. Um, I've done it also with people who have, unfortunately, some an elderly person whose child is draining their funds dry, you know, taking advantage of the power of attorney, you know, not, not being a good fiduciary, I'll put it nicely. So we get a temporary guardianship because it's an emergency to, to stop the financial drain of the funds or you know, a medical situation that needs immediate attention. But this is expensive because after you get the temporary, it only lasts a couple of months unless it's extended, but it's usually a couple of months and then you gotta go back and get the permanent. So you don't wanna count on having to do a temporary guardianship. It's, it's expensive and unnecessary if you plan in advance usually. Again, let's kind of go through the process. I sort of started on this. We've got the CME done. We filed the application. Oh, this is an important point I hadn't mentioned. On that physician's form, the doctor is going to indicate when he or she last examined the proposed ward. And whatever that date is, you've got to have the application on file within 120 days. So if you take that form to your doctor and the doctor hasn't seen your child in six months, the form isn't gonna be effective because you've got to have the doctor fill out the form based on a recent evaluation. And then we've got to get the guardianship application filed within 120 days of the day that the, the doctor examines your child. So again, you know, if you can plan ahead and schedule those appointments, but don't get it done too early because you can't file the application until your child's at least 17 and a half. Once the application is filed, a, a, somebody from the sheriff's office, the constable will actually come knock on your door, assuming your child lives with you and serve the part the proposed ward. So this is kind of frustrating for parents who have kids with very severe disabilities. It's a waste of money, but it is the law. We have to serve them personally. And it's got and we've got to have the sheriff or the constable knock on the door and give it, give the form to, to the person. And what the sheriff is going to give you is the actual application that you sign. So even if your child doesn't understand it, it still happens. We also have to notify certain family members. So parents of a proposed ward have to know that a guardianship is happening. 
even if there's a divorce, unless that other parent's rights were terminated, both parents have to know the guardianship application has been filed. Siblings also have to know, be notified, um, adult siblings, and they can either be served by mail or they can sign a waiver. Parents need to be served personally. Again, that's where we get the, the sheriff's office involved. If there's a marriage, a spouse has to be notified. Sometimes parents have to be notified. You know, it just depends on the family situation. But we notify all the family members. And you can see this is where we sometimes run into a delay. Occasionally, I'll have a client who, you know, might have a, a sp an ex-spouse who can't be found or, a, you know, a half-sibling who, who we don't know where they are. That can slow things down. Um, the person who wants to be the guardian also has to um, fill out a registration with the Judici Judicial Branch Certification Commission, or JBCC. And the JBCC will run a criminal background check on the proposed guardian and send that information to the courts. There will also be some online training. The person who wants to be a guardian will get a certificate that needs to be filed, but filed in the court system so the judge knows that the training was done. And you know, if you have that criminal history, you may not be eligible to be a guardian. So the guardians that can serve are, you know, the family members, that's who we're looking, spouses, of course, get first option, and then we just go with the closest relatives. We can have co-guardians, you know, parents, you have to be married to be co-guardians, or if you're divorced, it is allowed to be co-guardians of a child. So in other words, if my husband and I pass away and our daughter's under guardianship, our, one of our sons could be a guardian and a co-guardian with his spouse, but he couldn't be co-guardian with, with one of our other kids. You've gotta be married or parents of the adult disabled child. And I mentioned the uh, criminal background check. If you have a history of bad conduct or any kind of felony, you probably are not gonna be allowed to be the guardian. And, you know, there's also some other rules. You can't owe money to the ward. You can't be in litigation with the ward. If you're not living in Texas, you can be a guardian, but you need a resident agent. And, you know, the court can just decide you're not in, you're not suitable in my mind. So does this happen? Rarely. You know, honestly, I've never had it happen in any of my cases where the judge said, no, I just don't like you. I'm not going to appoint you. But it is an option. Okay. If you are appointed as a guardian, you should be thinking ahead who's going to follow you. And you need to specify in your will or other legal document, you know, who is going to be the successor guardian. If you haven't been appointed as a guardian, but you think your child may need a guardian at some point, that should be included in your will or a designation of guardian form. Um, if there's someone you specifically do not want to be your child's guardian, you need to indicate that as well. All right. Otherwise, the, the judge is just going to go with the closest relative. So just because you name somebody in your will to be the guardian, it doesn't mean you avoid the court system. It's just giving the judge information as to who your preference is to be a guardian if a guardian is needed. Uh, just to finish out the process, um, after the applications filed and, 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 and the proposed ward is served, an attorney ad litem is going to be appointed to represent your child. Uh, when I say child, we're talking an adult child. I hope you're following my, my thinking on this. So. But the attorney that I'm going to represent the proposed ward and go make a visit. And you know they are supposed to argue for whatever the proposed ward wants. So if someone came to my mother 
who was supposed to be under guardianship. And my mom said, I don't need a guardian. I don't want a guardian. The attorney ad litem would go back to court and say, nope, we don't need a guardian. Don't want one. And so they represent the proposed ward. Okay. Now, sometimes the proposed ward can't really express an opinion and they're just, you know, doing the best they can to represent what they think is in their best interest. But um, at, besides the attorney ad litem, a court investigator in some counties also has to make the contact and file a report. Those are in the larger counties where we have statutory probate courts. So we have that in Bayer County where I am. Um, not all of the surrounding counties have that though. And then we have the hearing after the 18th birthday and then the guardian signs a bond and uh, signs an oath and signs their bond. Now what the bond is, um, everybody under a guardianship in Texas has to be bonded. What is the bond? It's insurance, you have to buy a bond. It's again, a little hard for parents to swallow. Um, so normally most guardianships have a, a, a situation where the guardian is managing a whole lot of money and the bond amount is determined based on how much money you're managing. For a lot of families that I work with, there's no money to manage. It's just the guardianship of the person. So we get a minimum bond, which typically costs $100 a year. Or in my area of Texas, we can also get one-time fee bonds where the guardians pay $375 once and that's the lifetime bond, okay? Now, there are some counties where they let you do a personal bond. Uh, that's rare though, where you just sign paperwork. Other counties where you pay a cash bond, so this is gonna be county specific, but usually a corporate bond will cover everybody. So that's the most common type. And then if you have the guardianship of the estate, there's a lot more you have to do. We're not gonna get into a lot of detail here, but. If you are a guardian of the estate managing money, you're going to have to do an inventory of the assets. You're going to have to um, do an annual accounting every year, let creditors know what's going on. And if you have guardianship of the estate, you're going to need a lawyer to help you every year do the annual accounting. If you just have guardian of the person only, you still need to do a report every year, but you're not going to need a lawyer to be involved. And so that's why a lot of times we try to avoid the guardianship of the estate to save legal fees in the future. And so if, again, if you're just a guardian of the person, you do you fill out your report, submit it to the court, and the court will send you updated guardianship letters. That's your certificate, your proof that you have the guardianship powers. And um, it usually is about $10, $10 or so to file that report. Your new guardianship letters are typically $2 a letter, so about 20 bucks to keep it up and current. Annual accounting, that's where you have to have a lawyer involved. Even if you're a CPA, you still have to have an attorney licensed to do this work, file your accounting for you. Um, there are also many counties where a court monitor will come visit. And so that again, is a little bit county specific, but someone might come check on your child. I keep saying child, check on the proposed ward. And again, this feels a little offensive to parents, but think of it this way. When you're gone, it will be great to know that the court is going to be checking in to make sure your child is in a safe place and is, is having their needs attended to. Okay. Um, oh, before I take questions, there's, this comes up a lot. Can you, can you end a guardianship or can you change the guardianship? Absolutely. Um, we can go back to court and say, you know what? There's been new... Uh, developments, you know, this person has got some abilities we didn't think they would have. We need to modify the guardianship. Um, I have gone back several times and completely restored rights to someone who had their rights taking, taken away. And now there's alternatives that allow them to not need the guardianship anymore. 
Um, another common situation might be, uh, say your child loses, say, say the proposed ward, the ward loses the right to get married, but now you as guardians think, ah, oh, we really want her to get married. We're in favor of this. Then you can go back to court and ask the judge to restore that right to get married. So it is possible to modify guardianship. Um, it happens, but it is expensive. You know, guardianships are not cheap. We're talking thousands of dollars to get a guardianship and a modification of a guardianship is also going to be expensive like that. So it's not something you want to just take lightly, like, oh, we'll just do this now and modify it later. You know, it's it's a big deal to get the guardianship and to modify it. Um, if you move from your county, you also need to move the guardianship to the new county. So the guardianship is connected to the county. If you're in Texas, it's fairly easy to transfer the guardianship. If you're out of state, if you're moving out of state, you've got to transfer it to the new state. If you've arrived in Texas from another state where you had guardianship, you need to transfer your guardianship into Texas. And so usually this is not going to involve looking at all the medical evidence again. So it's not going to be as expensive. You're not going to need physician forms. You know, we in Texas are going to honor guardianships coming from other states. If I'm moving from Bayer County to Comel County, it's going to be easy. They're going to recognize that a guardianship in Bayer County is valid and they're going to accept the, you know, the determination of incapacity. Where we have, we do have to have a court hearing though to make sure that the guardian is qualified. So for example, if someone's coming to Texas from Florida, then we're going to have that new guardian or the guardians that are new to Texas, they're going to have to do the JBCC registration. We're going to check their criminal history. We're going to make them get a bond based on our rules here in Texas. And so you do need a lawyer to do that. Why is it so expensive? <laughs> it's because of all these steps along the way, all these court steps. You've got to not only pay for your own attorney, but also an attorney ad litem. Uh, minimum fees in Bayer County for an attorney ad litem are $600. Um, so, you know, it, it could, it depends where you are. Sometimes it's less, but usually you're looking around that much money, even for a very simple guardianship. And it goes up if it's more complicated. Uh, just to file for a guardianship is over $500 in most counties. You've got the bond that adds cost. So it does get very expensive. Um, before I take questions, let me just say, I know that guardianship is a tough decision for a lot of families. Um, I'm with you, you know, my particular family situation, my daughter has an intellectual disability, but is very high functioning in many, many ways. And it is a hard decision about what do you do? Do you take rights away from your child? Do we need to? What if they get better? What if, you know, and so if you're in that situation, um, you know, feel free to talk that out try alternatives. If you need someone to talk, talk it through with, you're welcome to contact me or another lawyer to just kind of work through the issues to see is the guardianship needed. For some people, it's an easy decision. It's not a close call. For others, it is a, it is a big decision. So if you're in that, if you're in that situation, you're not alone. And then I also am going to keep my email address and phone number on the screen in case, oh yeah, there's my email address. In case you want to reach out to me, feel free to send me an email. And, and I think Michelle already said she's going to send out the PowerPoint, but I'll send some handouts to Michelle, but you can reach out to me directly if that's easier. Yeah, so let's get through, uh, we'll, we'll keep your slide up for a minute and then um, switch that over to a slide for us. But let's answer some questions while people are writing down your uh, email and phone numbers too. So 
if you're doing a just supportive decision making, does the person, the the ward person, have to have full understanding of that when you're doing supportive decision agreement? Yes, you have to understand a legal document for it to be valid. But the supportive decision making agreements are very simple, very easy to understand. But if you have a child with an IQ of forty or something like that, then even a support decision-making agreement isn't going to work for that child. So, you know, you got to look at your child's understanding, but yes, you need to understand what you're signing. We have a question here. When should we consider applying for disability for our children? Uh, Jennifer, I think I need a little bit more clarification on what exactly you mean by applying for disability, and we'll be able to get that answered. Uh, Let me me just give a, a quick response to what I think. And by the way, we could do a social security presentation on disability that would last at least another hour. But if you're talking about you have a child with intellectual developmental disabilities or Down syndrome or something where it's a developmental disability, and now your child has reached the 18, the age of 18, that's a lot of times the time when people apply for SSI or SSDI. If it's clear that your child is not going to be able to work. And when I say work, work enough to cover their needs. In 2023, there's something called substantial gainful activity level, and that is $1,470. So to answer the question very quickly, if if the person who's considering applying for disability is able to earn $1,470 in a month, they're not gonna be considered disabled. But if they they have more than $2,000 in their name. Yeah, the the medical qualification has to do with ability to engage in substantial gainful activity for an adult. The for a child, for a minor child, it's going to be more like your special education qualifications. You know, marked and severe limitations in certain domains. We could feel free to call me if you need more details. But but that's only one part. Besides the medical qualification, you also have to qualify technically. And for SSDI, you qualify technically by having the right amount of credits or drawing off of your parents' work credits if your parents are retired, disabled, or deceased. Or if that doesn't apply to you, SSI, you have to be poor. You have to have, like like Michelle was saying, less than $2,000 in assets. Uh, There are exceptions like special needs, trust, and able accounts. But otherwise, you have to be poor and needy, limited income, limited assets. And so for a lot of people, they don't apply for SSI until the adult child is 18. At that point, parents' income and assets don't count anymore. Okay, That was a really quick answer. Feel free to reach back out if you want to get into that in more detail. Yes, definitely. It's like I said, it might take some more details to understand exactly what the right answer for that question is. Um, So you, if you want someone specifically to be the guardianship after you, you put that in your will, or is that in the guardianship documentation? It, w- it should be in your will because when you die, the judge is going to say, was there a will? Who did you know the guardian recommend to follow him or her? Um, there are also um, documents that you could complete a designation of guardian for my child in the event of my incapacity. You know, So you could fill out additional documents, but the will is absolutely critical. And, and it's, not, it's not a form document. You know, It's not something where when you're appointed guardian, you fill out forms and say, who the successor is. Okay, okay. And um, so the location, the county of where the guardianship is, like if you are a parent living in one county and your child lives in a group home in another county, which county do you file in? 
Yeah, that's a great question. It's usually going to be the county where the ward or proposed ward is living. There are some exceptions if you know you have a lot of assets in a different county, but for most most of the time you're going to figure out where is this person living who needs a guardianship and that's where you're going to file for it. And if you as a parent are in a different county, that's okay. If you're out of state, you would just need a resident agent to be appointed to represent you in Texas. Okay, fantastic. Um, there's another question about SSI. Uh, if a young adult receives SSI and they're not under guardianship, can they get SSDI? Yes, guardianship. You don't have to have guardianship for SSDI or SSI. Right, the guardianship is not related other than it might help with the application process by giving someone who can sign the documents if someone's severely incapacitated. Um, the SSI and SSDI, those are just different programs. Based, same medical qualification. SSI is for people who are poor and needy and don't qualify for the SSDI or don't qualify for enough money to make the minimum amount that SSI pays. In 2023, the government has said that people who are disabled are entitled to $914 a month as a maximum payment. And so if you are not getting that from SSDI or other sources, then SSI can make up the difference. That's a real oversimplification. There's a one-third penalty. If you there's a, a, lot to there's a lot to talk about on that. Yes, yes. Allison, can you go on to the, the next slides and we'll wrap this up and one or two more questions. These are just some of the things that we, we help with at Consolidated Planning Group. Some of the Webinars, you know, we do webinars two, three, four, sometimes more <laughs> times a week, and we put them all on our YouTube channel. Each of these can be an hour long webinar, but these are all the, the kinds of things that we help people with future care cost estimates, SSI and SSDI, the waiver programs, um, ABLE accounts, beneficiary designations, residential living communities. Um, educational options beyond high school, day have transition programs, all of that kind of stuff. So you need to check out uh, our webinars. They're always free. Uh, next slide, Allison. This is our team. Um, we work on a collaborative team uh, with some great professionals. We're located uh, in the Houston area, but we work all throughout Texas. We are members of the Special Needs Planning Academy, and we are National Social Security Advisors as well. And Allison, if you'll go to our last slide, this will show people how they can get in touch with Consolidated Planning Group. Um, we offer a free personalized consultation to anyone who wants one. Um, all you need to do is sign up for that free consultation. We want to learn about you and your situation uh, and answer your questions, whatever is, you know, on your mind. Then we'll go into how we work and what we charge and how that process happens um, and see if it would be a good fit for us to work together. So you can use the QR code to sign up or you can call us at 281-690-1177 or email contact at cpgcares.net. Uh, so if you'll leave this slide up while we answer these last few questions. Um, so if you're, there's a divorce situation and the parents don't really agree on who should be guardian and what, what should happen. So what, what do they do? What's the first step? Yeah, 
that that can be complicated. Unfortunately, a lot of times that leads to very, very expensive legal bills if you end up fighting it out in guardianship court. You have the option to have one parent file for guardianship and the other parent contest it. Um, what I typically see in my courts that I practice in, a lot of times we're required to go to mediation. Mediation costs add a lot of money to the legal fees. And some courts really would like you to see if you could work it out to be co-guardians. This does not work in some relationships, as we all know, but yeah. if something where both the, you know parents can work it out to be co-guardians, sometimes that is the optimal solution. And sometimes we have a court order that gives specific you know rights or visitation or some other, you know, we we basically allow you give a lot more detail in the court order. So there's no set answer. Sometimes you just it's worth having one parent apply and the other parent needs to choke on it and they can contest and if they don't contest then we just move forward you do need to notify the other parent in other situations it's best to try to work it out maybe consider a co-guardianship uh, so my daughter is going to be the guardian after i die but she lives in north carolina does she need to move to san antonio no don't need to be in san antonio to be a guardian but you do need you do need a resident agent to represent you so typically that would be the lawyer you're going to need a lawyer anyway to take care of the successor guardian and so i'm the rep representative agent for a lot of people resident agent i said representative resident agent what that means is if there's any lawsuit or anything that the court needs to reach out to i'm the contact person for the out-of-state uh, guardian so yeah it's certainly possible to stay where you are and be a guardian from afar that, that happens Okay, and I think this is the last one. I missed it earlier. What is the best way to finalize if a person needs supportive decision, a supportive decision agreement? Um, I, if you're saying what's the best way to, oh, to to get the supportive decision making agreement? Um, yeah. If that's what you're asking, I mean, you could get one through an attorney's office, um, but honestly, or you know, I, I think maybe consolidated planning and some other. Groups like that might help you with that. Um, but you can also find samples online. I recommended the Ark of Texas, Disability Rights Texas. In my area, we have the MAC at Morgan's Wonderland, which I also highly recommend you looking into that. Um, and we have clinics down there. I volunteer at some clinics where we try to help people get those documents at no charge for members who attend the MAC. So yes. yeah, there, there's a lot of programs like that out there as an option too. Okay. Um, so we have one more. Oh, she says, no, sometimes it's hard to finalize if the patient is appropriate or not. Okay. I see what you're saying. If you really think this is a borderline case, you could use an attorney. As an attorney, we are obligated to evaluate for capacity. Um, I will tell you there have been, <coughs> excuse me, times where I've had to tell family members, I'm not going to let this person sign a power of attorney. I don't think he or she understands what he's signing. Excuse me. So, you know, you could use an attorney to help you make that determination of capacity. If you use a lawyer, then it will be, it'll be easier to defend the document. Otherwise, you just have to make sure the person understands what they're signing. I don't know if that answered your question. I hope so. 
Well, we are out of time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to both Ryan and Allison. Allison, for all of this fantastic information, Ryan, for hosting us, sharing us with your families. Um, if you have any further questions, please just feel free to reach out to Allison or Consolidated Planning Group. If we don't know the answer, we will put you uh, in the right direction to find someone who does know the answer. Um, again, the slides from today's webinar and the recording will be sent out a little bit later on today. Um, and I'm going to warn you that we at Consolidated Planning Group are not pushy, but we will call you and we're going to ask if you have any further questions and if you want to sign up for our free initial consultation. So please, I promise we don't bite. Please don't be rude. <laughs> don't hang up on us. We, uh, we're just trying to help. So um, please, you know, if there's anything that you need, feel free to reach out to us if you don't hear from us first. <laughs> Enjoy the rest of your week. I hope you're having a great day. Thank you all for being with us today. And uh, we'll, we'll talk again soon. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Bye, Ryan. Securities and advisory services offered through Triad Advisors, member FINRA and SIPC, Consolidated Planning Group Incorporated and Triad Advisors LLC are not affiliated. Advisory services offered through Consolidated Planning Group Incorporated. Consolidated Planning Group Incorporated is not affiliated with Triad Advisors.